we have reached verse 30 of chapter 9, where Paul, based off of the conclusion of his teachings previous, says, what shall we say then? And again, we were talking about, or he's been talking about, uh, are the Israelites going to miss out on the promises of God? Has the word of God failed? And he's already made the point, no, the word of God has not failed to Israel. They were never elect nationally in the sense that everyone who was born an Israelite would be saved. He made that point. He also made the point that God has not acted unrighteously toward Israel. He's never done anything other than what he said he would do in terms of showing mercy the way he wants to show mercy and hardening those he would harden. And he hasn't treated them unfairly. Certainly Israel uh, deserved much worse than what God had blessed them with. They hadn't earned anything in their actions. They hadn't earned anything just by their own merit. Because he loved them, he loved them, he chose them. If they were left to themselves, they would have been swept away. They would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God kept that elect remnant because he promised he would. And that elect remnant has always been there. So again, verse 30, what shall we say then? So kind of getting back to all that, that the Gentiles, this is kind of the summation, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Paul brings us back here and he says, so if we're saying the Israelites are missing out on God's promises, it's not because his word has failed or these other things they've talked about. It's because they've sought them the wrong way. He says the Gentiles have found God's righteousness because they sought it by faith. And he's already made the argument previously. Faith was always the method God put out there even with people like Abraham or David. Their faith was always the way they received God's righteousness. But the Jews have missed it because they, have sought, they sought to attain it by works, not as by faith. They tried to earn it themselves. And Paul quotes two passages here from Isaiah that he's going to move into. Um, and he's going to state that basically God, in both these passages, there's a, there's a context there of an impending Assyrian invasion and what was going to happen to Israel. And the prophet Isaiah in both those passages speaks about a divine rock or stone that God provides that the people could turn to and look to in these times in both of those passages. And the idea was you either turn to God's resource or you're swept away. You, you have to avail yourself of what mercy God has given, or you're stumbled by it. So he says, again, 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Of course, Christ would talk to his disciples about he himself being the rock, 
that needed to be built on. And ultimately, our lives and salvation and the church itself is resting upon him. Peter would pick this same idea up in 1 Peter chapter 2. But the idea is, I, I'm either building my life on one of two things. Faith in God or my own works. What I can get myself. My own strength, my own thoughts, my own self-discipline, my own healthy diets and way to approach life. Right? I, really, there's only two ways in the end to live life. And there's particularly only two ways to approach the situation of righteousness. And when it comes to God's righteousness, I have to lean on the stone, the divine stone that he's provided, or I stumble at that stone. And Jesus used this in reference to himself as well. This was now the way God was working, offering the Messiah to them in a way they hadn't expected. And they either needed to lean on him, trust in him. And if they did, they would not be put to shame. He was precious to them. If they did not, they would stumble at that or be crushed by that. The wonderful thing is, he's still the same. He's still the rock of ages. Uh, some, some people in the language in Isaiah it can give the idea, which I think is a cool idea, that that second half of the verse there, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, that that's like the inscription upon the stone. Right? If, I, if I lean on Jesus, the inscription is, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's, that's the stone we're leaning on when we lean on Christ. And John picked, there's, this theme is picked up all through scripture, certainly in regard to salvation particularly, but also in regard to God's plan. And John would say, this is what overcomes the world, the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Where we're trusting, where we're leaning, what we're depending on in the end. Is it Christ? Is it his word? Is it his way? Is it the way that he's put out for us to obtain righteousness and life and mercy and joy? The problem with Israel is, they sought it the wrong way. He continues in 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He, he inserts this again, I think, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to again affirm his love for these people and his heart for them in what he's teaching. My, he says, listen, guys, brethren, there's both Gentiles and Jews there. There's brothers and sisters in Christ, but also many of them nationally, Jews, he would have a heart for them. And he says, look, it's, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God. I, I have this continually on my heart, he said. I'm grieved about this all the time, that Israel might be saved. And I think he has to put this in there because, again, he's just made a pretty clear statement in those last verses about Israel missing out on God's promises, and them misunderstanding the way God was working through history. So if you're a person who talks to anybody else, particularly even today in our culture, and you seek to correct them, let alone try to say who's going to heaven and who's not, that's not really popular. It wasn't then and it isn't now. 
People don't appreciate that type of conversation. Now, Paul has to do this because he loves them. He was a person who was lost outside of Christ, and Christ found him. And he learned the love of God and the heart of God. And I'm sure these things were radical for him when he first realized them and was taught them whether through certainly the work of the Holy Spirit or through the apostles or others he spoke with, they were difficult things for him. And I think he knows that. But the Holy Spirit leads him to, again, emphasize, no, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. This is why I'm telling you these things. I'm not telling you these things just to be right. Certainly Paul was an intellectual. I'm not telling you these things just to win an argument. He wants them to be saved. This is, this is my heart. And I think in any conversation, certainly that we have with folks that God puts us around, particularly those we love that are lost, we have to say the things that are right. We have to say the things that are true. We should say them with the right heart. We should say them with the right attitude. People might not like those things, Certain people will definitely not like those things. But it is loving to speak the truth in love. It's a command. And it is not loving to he who knows to do good and does it not. To him it is sin, the Bible says. To know the truth about the gospel, about the way God works in the world, to have been given his thoughts and to be unwilling to share them with those who don't have them or need them. It's not loving them. It's doing the exact opposite. And nowhere does the Bible say, because Paul knew these things weren't going to make him popular. This was not, this was not a, a message that, that would raise his esteem necessarily in people's eyes. But God never tells us, you'll notice, to prove to others or convince them that we love them. He just tells us to love them in his way. Jesus loved everyone, but there was a whole lot of people that weren't convinced that Jesus loved them. There's some that do. There are a lot of people who didn't like Jesus. A lot of people who thought Jesus was just there to destroy their nation. A lot of people didn't like Jesus for all types of reasons, even though he was going to die for them. He didn't actually convince everybody of his love. But he loved them in God's eyes. And I think Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is again putting forward his love for those that here now he's speaking to and correcting and even saying, this is how you enter into God's righteousness. And if you don't enter in this way, you are not entering into God's righteousness. And therefore, heaven and hell. They knew those things. And even for those who were believers, it was, it was a mode of correction, which again, we don't like. We all need to be corrected. And nobody likes doing any type of correcting. So if we all need it, but nobody likes doing it, if you have somebody in your life who's willing to, you should bless God for that person. Because most people don't love us enough to say what needs to be said in our lives many, many times. Paul here is willing to do that, even though he knows 
very often it would cost him pain, literal, physical, being thrown in jail, death threats. But this is what his heart is, and this is what God's heart is. And so he's going to continue here. He's going to bear witness, he says in verse 2, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I, I bear witness of them. He knows that they are zealous for God, that Jews are zealous. He was that. He knew that better than most people. He had more zeal than most Jews. He was known for his zeal as a Jew to destroy the church. But he says his zeal was without knowledge. There are plenty of people who are zealous in the world, certainly even other religions that can at times convict us. Muslims, very zealous, often. Jehovah's Witnesses, very zealous, often, knocking on doors just about everywhere. There's unsaved people that are zealous about all types of things. We have the most important thing in the world. But the problem is, you could be sincere, but sincerely wrong. If I'm running really hard, but running the wrong direction, it doesn't help me. If, if I'm going opposite of God, even if I'm going there that way sincerely, I'm in trouble. Of course, in the Old Testament, Uzzah was a great picture of this. The guy who reached out to touch the ark when he never should have touched the ark. Zeal without knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And Paul is acknowledging here his people, they have zeal but they have it without knowledge, he says. For they being ignorant, here's, here's really what they're, they're ignorant of, of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, Paul's not going to get into it all again, but because one through five was his whole point about God's righteousness already. He said again in 3.22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. God is righteous, both just and the justifier, towards sinners. And he offers his own righteousness. Again, only two types of righteousness. My righteousness, which is through my own works, and God's righteousness, which is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I have two options in life. We, uh, there's so many people that still think, you know, that there's this other option, which is basically being a good person, which is kind of a middling option where I do my best, which is better than a lot of people who are lousy. But what I can't do, like God should kind of like make that up for me because, you know, I'm not as bad as those guys. That isn't any type of righteousness at all. There's, there's two things that we present to God in the end. My own works or the works of Jesus Christ. And no human being, no matter how good they are, is anything close to Jesus Christ. Because Paul will say, that's why he says verse 4, kind of summing it up here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He is both the end of it and the goal of it. Christ ended the law not by destroying it, but by fulfilling it and realizing it. 
He was the law literally enfleshed. He lived it out in front of them. Whatever they believed about the law and the law could stand for, Jesus Christ was that walking on the face of the earth. He even spoke that way. He often said, you have heard it say to you, but I say to you. And spoke about the law in ways that nobody else had ever spoken about. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath and did things on the Sabbath that they never would have imagined. Everybody who heard him teach said, we have never heard anybody teach with authority like this. Because it was the voice of the Lord. He was jealous for the law. He looked at the Pharisees and said, with your Corbin and your traditions, you make the word of God of none effect. You're actually canceling out the law by all the stuff you've added to it. You make it void. He would, in the end, say, why don't you go learn what this means? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. They didn't understand. He was literally living the law out in front of them. And he said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fill it. And anything that the law could have required, he lived it out. The Jews thought their life was in the law because God gave it to them. And therefore, we can live this out and earn our own righteousness. But they missed the fact that the law pointed to God and then God gave them his son. An even greater revelation than anything that ever came with the law at any point in the law's history. Greater than when Moses went up on the mountain the Son of God in human flesh, standing in front of them. Living his life every single moment to God's pleasure. So that he could stand in front of a crowd and say, which one of you can, can convict me of sin? And nobody could answer. I mean, that would be really easy for us. Right? If we stood up in front of a whole bunch of people we know and say, who can remember any sin in my life? It's ridiculous. That, that he could even do that. And these Jews, they were trying to establish their own righteousness. And Paul's trying to point this out. He was a guy who did that. But he says, no, you're missing out on God's righteousness. The whole point is the law teaches you you can't earn your own righteousness. You need what he offers. That's why in 8.4, again, he said that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What the law requires, I can never fulfill in my flesh. God has given me his Holy Spirit, the spirit of the one person who lived it out. He gives to those now who are his sons and his daughters. And Paul, I think he was brokenhearted that they weren't getting this. When he talked to Jews, when he spoke with them, he wanted them to see this, to understand it. And instead, here is literally the Messiah on the outside of the system that people are supposed to recognize him. Uh, it's a separate Bible study, but sadly, at the end of the church age in the last days, particularly with the church of Laodicea, it seems like the very same thing is pictured of the church where Jesus is again outside of his own church knocking on the door trying to come in if so hardened things to work their own righteousness 
that they can't see what God is doing, even though it's right in front of them. So Paul would say this in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, and says the man who does those things shall live by them. Paul's going to contrast here the life and language of righteousness through the law versus the righteousness with faith. So in verse 5, he quotes from Leviticus 18.5. It's picked up in Luke 10.28 and Galatians 3.12. That life was, was promised to those who do the law and live. The problem was nobody could do the law perfectly except for that one man. Everybody would do the law a little bit and then realize, I can't do the law. Uh, I mess up. And that's why sacrifices were given as a help to those who could not. And they would teach you, I need to look somewhere else for covering and forgiveness. Moses writes like that. He says about the law, but in verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say that the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart? That is the word of faith which we preach. Here, Paul quotes the second time from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Very interesting, kind of unique context the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. Moses is going off the scene. He's just given them this long list of blessings and curses of what will happen if they don't follow the Lord. And there's certainly some tension because Moses, who has been the mouth of God to them, basically, they even said, you go talk to God and then come back and tell us what he said, because we don't ever want to talk to him again. They were terrified hearing God's voice. And Moses is going off the scene, and I think there's some fear and trepidation there. Where, where are we going to hear God's word? Where, where are we going to receive his commandments? And one of Moses' encouragements to them here is, the word, the commandment, it's not far from you. You don't have to go hunting for it. It's not something difficult to find. His encouragement is there's simplicity there. It's right in your mouth. They would recite it in so many things. It's, it's in your heart. And what he does, Paul takes that and he moves it to this kind of modern day preaching here. And he inserts Christ for the command and says, what do you got to go search for? Instead of hearing the word from a Moses or finding a command from someone like that, that we have to go up into heaven to get Christ? Of course, I think he's picturing the incarnation there. No, he came down to us. Would you have to go into the dead to get him? No, he's already risen. And he's come back to us. He says, it's not far from you. It's right in your mouth and in your heart. It's actually really simple. It's not this super confusing thing that you got to work really hard to discover. It's right in front of you, and you actually just need to believe it. And <clears throat> that it's off that that he builds these verses that... Uh, you know, are very familiar to us and we love, he says in verse 9, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is what they would do about the Old Testament. They would confess with their mouth that the word was the word of God, and they believed in their heart what it said. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with mouth confession is made to salvation. Here, Paul plays off that Deuteronomy section again, picking up the, con- the connection there between the mouth and the heart, which is all through Scripture. Um, there isn't some magic superstitious thing about the confession here, as if we got to say the right words. And if we don't say the right words, then it doesn't count. We can be afraid of those things. I prayed and asked Jesus in my heart, but I didn't say amen. Maybe that one didn't count. Uh, I got to try it again, maybe a different way. That's not, that's not what it's talking about. There's the, the point is, there's a reality in the heart, and the reality in the heart comes out through the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. David certainly knew this truth, where he would say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Paul will tell us in Corinthians that no one can call Jesus Lord unless that person has received the Holy Spirit. They can't, they can't even actually say that. We, we just looked that the Holy Spirit in our hearts causes us, causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. This new life that we have, it comes out. There's a confession of it. There's a reality of it and a confession of it. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart. Now, certainly, you know, people can lie about one or the other. You can make a profession that's not actually true. Uh, there are plenty of churches that have their beliefs all laid out, and they don't actually live out or emphasize any of them. Right? You could be a human person that says you believe all these types of things, and you don't actually live out or believe any of them. Sure, that's, that's a possibility. But the reality was Israel just needed to confess for them particularly a really simple truth. Peter said it in that first sermon on Pentecost, Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter said, here's what you need to know, that God has made the one you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he sent the message to you first. You crucified him, and guess what? You're the first person who hears that he's Lord in Christ. It's a pretty remarkable thing that God does for his people. Paul wants them to know that. It was Paul's great revelation when Jesus knocked him off his horse, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus Christ, whom you're persecuting. That was a big moment there for him, that Jew, that Jesus was the Lord and the Messiah. And for these Gentiles, they just had to confess the same thing. And it's simple for us. It's not hard. There's all types of ways we can complicate it and lose its simplicity. Uh, There's all types of ways that we can begin to be scared and the enemy wants to throw little doubts in our minds and causes us to question things. Uh, One of the pastors I was reading spoke about a friend of his 
And he said, this friend of his went to a lady's house who was passing away, Christian lady. She was nervous and uh, scared, you know, stepping into eternity. And he said he simply he read these verses, and then he asked her, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And she said, yes, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. And he said, do you believe that God raised him from the dead? And she said, yes, I believe that. And he said, well, if you believe the first half of what the verses say, why don't you believe the second half of what the verses say? And she said, okay, I see it. I said, you see what? She said, I see that I'm saved. If we believe that he's Lord, we believe he's risen from the dead, then I should also believe that I am saved and I will not be ashamed. Because that's what he promises here. And what it means to believe is to believe in him. It doesn't mean to just intellectually believe. To believe him. This is his word. Frederick Beekner, in his book Whistling in the Dark, says this, Along similar lines, the New Testament Greek speaks of believing into rather than believing in. In English, we can perhaps convey the distinction best by using either in or no preposition at all. Believing in God is an intellectual position. It need not have more effect on your life than believing in Freud's method of interpreting dreams or the theory that Sir Francis Bacon wrote Romeo and Juliet. Believing God is something else again. It's less a position than a journey, less a realization than a relationship. It doesn't leave you cold like believing the world is round. It stirs your blood like believing the world is a miracle. It affects who you are and what you do with your life, like believing your house is on fire or somebody loves you. We believe in God when we, for one reason or another, choose to do so. We believe God when we somehow run into God in a way that, by and large, leaves us no choice to do otherwise. When Jesus says, whoever believes into him shall never die, it does not mean that to be willing to sign your name to the Nicene Creed guarantees eternal life. Eternal life is not the result of believing in. It is the experience of believing. Is this God's word to you today? And do you believe God? Not in. Do you believe God? Because you can believe in all types of things intellectually. But do you believe the person? Right? That's really simple, actually. Words aren't hard to understand. It's about trust in a person's character. This is his word. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, Confession is made unto salvation. That's the Lord's word. Paul picks it up and says in 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Which was certainly, I think, also a big thing for these Jews. It was, it was almost shameful, like you were turning away from your culture or your heritage. You were becoming something that you didn't really want to be. When the reality was... You are following the Messiah, where you always should be. 
And he says, if you do that, you, you actually, the promise is you won't be put to shame. You're not going to regret it in the end. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul picks up this point here that the Jews should have recognized, where he says the word whosoever or whoever actually meant whoever, which also meant Jew and Gentile. You notice he, he says that in there. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Therefore, there's no distinction for the Lord between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is over all, and he is rich to all who call upon him. Doesn't, you don't have a leg up just because you were born a Jew. Everyone who actually calls upon him and believes in him will be blessed. It's an expansive offer, and he quotes from Joel 2.32 in verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter picked that up as well in his message on Pentecost. And both of them are emphasizing the, the worldwide offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And again, the point is whoever accepts that, they will not be put to shame. They're not going to look back and be sorry that they did. Again, the Christian message is not that it's not going to be difficult along the way, that there's not some hardship, that there's not challenges, that faith won't be challenged. It's that God's going to come through on what he said, that he's faithful and he's true. And I'm not going to be ashamed that I put my trust in him in the end. It's going to be worth it. And there's all different types of things that could cause us to be ashamed here, but there's really only one moment of shame, and the world hasn't really known it. That's when you look your creator in the face, and that face either looks at you with divine pleasure or says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That's, that's when everything actually comes to a head. You know, it's unique in the Gospels. They never talk much about Jesus' face. Uh, one author I was reading pointed that out. But he said, you know, when the world's burning down around you, you don't take time to write a thumbnail sketch of something. And his point was, these guys, these disciples, they were so caught up in the life of this person in front of them. Like the color of his eyes wasn't that important in that moment. They didn't, they didn't, it wasn't about describing his face or what he looked like or his hair or something. You know, that's kind of like our shallow American way of looking at things. These guys, they were following the Messiah, and their message became heaven and hell. The, the one we've been waiting for is here. This is the purpose, literally, of life. And you can find eternal life or miss out on eternal life. And Paul is saying, this offer is out there for whoever. And we immediately go in our minds usually to all different types of ways that that whoever doesn't relate to us, that whoever is somebody else's whoever. But he's saying, no, God's word is whoever. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're here tonight so that you can learn that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And he will accept you and forgive you, 
and wash you and offer you a righteousness that's his that you can't get anywhere else. If you give up your own and forsake all hope in yourself and your own merit. Because he's the savior. And what matters in the end is whether the Lord overall is rich in his mercy toward me. Because I recognize who he is as Lord overall. And Paul wants these, I think particularly Jewish believers, to understand they're not giving something up by putting faith in their Messiah. Just because he's working in a way maybe a little differently than they thought. And I think he wants these Gentile believers to know the offer is there for you. It's not special just for them. When he said whoever, he meant whoever. And because he's Lord over all, he's rich towards all. How then, he says, building off of that, shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul here goes in and shows that it is necessary. The things he's saying are necessary. They are necessary for other people to say, how, okay, if he's, if he's rich towards all that call upon him, how is anybody going to call upon him if they haven't believed in him? And how are they going to believe if they haven't heard anything about him? And how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches, says something to them? God is no longer sending the Messiah in human flesh around the world. He's sending the message of the lamb slain and risen and coming again around the world. And that message just needs preachers, ambassadors. Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 7 about beautiful feet, which is something we don't think about very often. <laughs> Not actually, uh, of course, the human feet. The context is in Isaiah, the exiles from their captivity being uh, released, which was good news, certainly. But here is better news of an eternal salvation from exiles in a different way. And the, the reality of the good news of the gospel coming to us, of course, is a beautiful picture no matter how it comes I don't care if you were in Nineveh if you understood the value of what Jonah being puked up on your shores meant you would go wash his dirty feet right he wasn't the best messenger but this destruction was right there your eternal salvation was dependent on that weird dude that message coming, God was sending him. And it was important that they heard. And that is God's grace when he sends someone, whatever they look like, into our life. And he certainly, Jonah most certainly wasn't the best preacher, that's for sure. Because the person, the messenger, is not where the power is. The message is where the power is. That it doesn't matter how you and I are, that should take the pressure off of us. We don't actually save anybody. I don't save anybody. 
I, I am not the essential figure in anybody else's life. God put us around. We could be a help. He lets us be a part. But the best thing we do is simply point people to Jesus. That's all we do. We give them the message. You can call on him and he will save you. He will hear you. He will cleanse you. He will give you his spirit. He will change you. We don't actually do anything. We just, we're just road signs, just pointing people to Jesus. He has all the power. It's not about me. There's not some, we get pressure a lot. There's some secret thing. If I don't do it the right way, what if they ask me a question? I don't know. That's really, that's really easy. Just say, I don't know. I can look it up for you. I'll get back to you. Let's go talk to a pastor. They might know. Like, you don't have to know. You just have to know what the answer is, which is Jesus Christ. He's what you need. And he can save you. And unlike every other religion in the world, we could tell a person, go home, read your Bible, and he'll speak to you. And we believe our God can show up in their room and speak to them because he's actually alive. And he's actually everywhere. And he will answer his word that anybody who calls on him will be saved and not be ashamed. So Paul's encouraging us to go, to share this. And he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's going to acknowledge, hey, this has kind of happened, but the Jews, they haven't all obeyed this. They haven't responded in this way. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Speaking of that suffering servant. Hey, people haven't believed the message. They've heard the message and they've rejected the message. But 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The idea there is Paul wants to, in this next section, answer some of the other questions he knew would come up. But had the Jews heard this message? But what if they didn't understand it? But, well, okay, if what you're saying is true, how does this all work out? He knew there was going to be all those types of questions. But he wants to double down first on the point that the message or the report of God is what builds faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. My faith is in God. The word shows me who God is. So if my idea of God grows, if I see him more in the reality of who he is, revelation, spiritual revelation is seeing things the way God sees them. If God opens my eyes and my heart to see him more the way he truly is, then you know what happens? My faith grows proportionally. But where can I see God? Perfectly, truly, only in his word. That's the sure place, the safe place. How can I know him? In his word. So my faith has to come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Tozer would say this in his book, The Set of the Sail, a church is strong or weak just as it holds to a high or low idea of God. For faith rests not primarily on promises, but upon character. And a believer's faith can never rise higher than his conception of God. A promise is never better or worse than the character of the one who makes it. An inadequate conception of God must result in a weak faith. For faith depends on the character of God, 
just as the building rests upon its foundation. How then shall unbelief be cured and faith be strengthened? Not by straining to believe the scriptures as some do, not by a frantic effort to believe the promises of God, not by gritting our teeth and determining to exercise faith by an act of the will. All this has been tried and it never helps. To try to superinduce faith is to violate the laws of the mind and do violence to the simple psychology of the heart. What is the answer? Job told us, acquaint thyself with him and be at peace. Paul said, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. These two verses show the way to a strong and lasting faith. Get acquainted with God through the reading of the scriptures and faith will come naturally. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It starts in the moment of salvation. We hear that we're sinners and that he's a savior. That our righteousness doesn't measure up and his does and he offers it to us as a free gift. And we believe that. We believe it about him. And then it doesn't end there. We continue to live our life by faith. Faith starts our Christian life. And then faith in God's character continues all through the rest of our Christian life. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. doesn't matter where we are. I think sometimes we can have a conception that to live by faith means maybe if I'm poor or have some really needy financial situation or if I'm a missionary, then maybe I live by faith. But if I'm a normal person who kind of has a decent home and car and job and I'm relatively healthy, then it's not actually that possible for me to live by faith like some of these other people do. I got to kind of put myself in some other position. That's not biblical at all. All of us need to trust in God's character in a thousand different ways. And that's challenged in our life in a thousand different ways. But the challenge, it's a challenge to trust in God's character to just pray out loud for some people. It's a challenge in God's character when any type of health situation appears in our life. It's a challenge in God's character to say, you know what, Lord, I got to work on my self-control because that's a fruit of your spirit. It's a challenge to the character of God to turn away from the things of the world and to believe in the recompense of the reward like Moses had to do. It's a challenge of God's character for us to say, all right, Lord, this plan didn't go the way that I thought. I didn't get this job the way that I thought. My life didn't work out here the way that I thought. I'm not married when I thought I was gonna. We have this issue here or there. Some of these friendships didn't work out the way I thought they were gonna, right? There's a million ways that we have to look back to God's word. We have to say, what does your word say? Who does it say you, you are? Are you going to be faithful to these things in my life? It's not just believing in God anymore. It's believing God. And that faith is not going to come by me working really hard to drum it up. It comes by me seeing who God is and resting in that. And the more I rest in it, the easier I'll find the blessing and the peace and the guidance and the light, and the strength, 
that I need for all those other situations. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Certainly the context is immediate in terms of salvation, but it continues that way through the rest of the Christian life. That's why it's so important that we put the word of God constantly in front of our hearts and minds, that we're rich in the word of God because we need it. And sadly, in Paul's day, there were a whole bunch of synagogues where people talked about God that didn't have any type of saving faith. Just like in our day, there are a whole lot of churches where people talk about God, but because they don't actually talk God's message from his word, there are whole churches without any saving faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Salvation and maturity in the Christian life are necessarily built on his word. Him, not anything else, not church methods, not other people, not skits, not props, not jokes or humor or personality. None of those things can build faith. They can entertain, but they can't actually build faith. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, it's not actually hard to understand. The word is right there. It's in your mouth. You can all say it. It should be in your heart. The Holy Spirit is that secret ally that witnesses. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But Paul says in 18, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Paul's saying, have the Jews not heard about this? And he says, yes, he quotes the Psalms, which speak about God being known from all creation or in all creation. And that's passing into all the world. I think he's picking up that same kind of picture here about this message and the gospel going out. He says, particularly in 19, did I say, did Israel not know first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So here he says, did the Jews not not get it? Did they not get the message? Did they not understand? How come so many of them then don't believe this? And he's saying, no, they got the message. Moses even says, this is going to happen. I will provoke you to jealousy. He's quoting again from Deuteronomy here. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. This, Moses said this was going to happen in your history. He, you looked at him as the mouth of God. God was saying this to you guys. Unfortunately, Israel's history was not really treating the messengers of God really well. Right, Moses, remember, they wanted to get rid of him a number of times. They got sick of him quite often. Jeremiah, he wasn't treated really well. Isaiah wasn't always treated the best, certainly. Uh, Manasseh was a pretty horrible king, killed a lot of God's prophets. Elijah, not treated super well. I mean, you just go through the list of the prophets. Amos, they told him, just go home. You're this farmer. We don't want you around here. The, the guys who are speaking God's word, they weren't exactly the most popular in their day and age. Because the message wasn't always what people wanted to hear. Sometimes. There's a couple out there, right? Fortunately, sometimes the people heard the word. But it isn't something shocking that 
these Jews would receive God's message and reject it, nor is it shocking even today that people would receive God's message and reject it. And Jesus, of course, was the ultimate picture of that. Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 13, said, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Right? Here's Jesus, and it's happening right in front of him. He says, and the message is going out, couldn't go out any clearer. And there was a group there that totally rejected it. And he said, Isaiah said this group would exist. And he said, blessed are you, because there are some here who hear and who see. And the prophets in the Old Testament, those holy, godly men, they desired to see and to hear what you're seeing and hearing. It's a pretty remarkable privilege did they know this was God's plan at all? He says in verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold, which is, Isaiah's already said some bold things, but for this, this one, this is a big one for Paul. He says, Isaiah is speaking really clear, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me, and I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Did the, did the Jews have any knowledge that the Gentiles would be a part of this plan? That God was going to, through the Messiah, also bless them and reach out to the world? He says, yeah, they did. Isaiah said it really clearly. He, there was other verses certainly could have quoted from. But he says, they should have seen this. Moses was telling them about it. Isaiah was telling them about it. But verse 21, but to Israel, he says, all day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Sad, right? Uh, it's, it's a sad picture. Literally, God is seen with hands outstretched, trying to welcome in his own people, and they are leaving him there. Just waiting, not entering into this. He says, you, you might ask me, well, maybe they never heard this message, or maybe they didn't understand it. He said, no, they heard it, and no, they understand it. The problem is that they didn't want to receive it, and God is literally standing there with hands outstretched to them. And he says, I stand, I stand here with hands outstretched to a disobedient and contrary people. It's actually really sad. Of course, there was one who showed us the Father more than anyone else. We hear his heart, Matthew 23. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather 
your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was the same way. He didn't just write them off. It wasn't as if he didn't care about them. His heart was broken that they were not receiving him. The prophet Jeremiah has some pretty incredible verses um, where we see the heart of God, particularly in chapter 2, where he says, they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Right? Like, even in a human relationship, for somebody you care about that you're trying to plead with, if they turn their back to you and not their face, like God's saying, That's, this is what my own people have done to me. They've turned their back to me and not their faces. He says, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. My own people, days without number have, have gone by where they have forgotten me. This is who he is. Cares about these things. Cares about us. He cares about his people. He's not somebody who's afar off and distant. Certainly, the life of Christ showed that more than anything else. And Paul, I think, is pleading with his own people, saying, this isn't God writing you off. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Either this is true or it's a total caricature. No, he is standing there with arms outstretched, but you have been a disobedient and contrary people. Stop turning your back to him and turn your face to him. That's what he wants. He says, return to me. That's his heart. And Paul wants these people in the simplicity of faith to receive him and believe in him. Certainly, we need the same. We start that way. I think for us as believers, we have to remember that we continue that way. But I would say, if anybody is here tonight that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should turn to him. Turn your face to him, not your back, and he will receive you, and you'll never be ashamed. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you care about us. We thank you that you're patient with us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you're willing to correct us. Lord, I know I don't want to live with wrong thoughts of you, who you are. And I pray that you would just send your Holy Spirit to do that work that you promised he would do, to guide our fallible hearts and minds into all truth. Lord, we want to see you in your word. We want our faith built by what we see and know of you there. And Lord, I just pray that you would certainly allow us to be a part of your purposes here. Open up doors for us, Lord, to share your message. We pray, Lord, certainly in the Philadelphia area that we could see people coming to you calling on your name and being saved. So you know what that looks like, Lord Jesus. 
keep these things in our hearts, in our minds, in the place, Lord, that you know they should be, the right priority, the right value. So we commit ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.